Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist as well as a Reiki practitioner. You can find me online through my website, which is nolatherapy.com, the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. And from there, you can do three things. You can book appointments to see me remotely via phone, Skype, or FaceTime sessions or in person at my New Orleans or Los Angeles office locations, as well as I come to you doing on-location sessions. You're able to listen to archived episodes of this show from NOLA Therapy and subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. I want to thank everyone for all the support and just the downloads and the listening. And I just feel it so much. And and also the support. You can additionally support this show through my crowdfunding campaign, which is through patreon.com forward slash Lisa Tahir, all of which have links at NOLA Therapy. So I'm really pleased today to have a guest that shares my uh, my professional job, so to speak. My guest coming on in just a few moments is Betsy Graziani Fassbender. She is a licensed psychotherapist, marriage family psychotherapist for over 25 years. She's a corporate trainer, a writer and speaking coach, as well as an author. She has received numerous awards and has written a novel, a memoir that we're going to discuss today, and several published public essays, and short stories. Today in particular, we are discussing her latest release that I just finished about an hour ago titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And this book that Betsy wrote touches on some significant themes that a lot of us have experienced in our lives, such as love, loss, being part of a blended family, suicide, and the power of hope. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. You're welcome. How are you today? I'm well. I'm in Northern California, so as your listeners listen to this, we're uh, we're seeing blue skies in the last day or two for the first time, and today actually little storm clouds instead of smoke, and storm clouds might be a good thing, so... Uh, It'd be so great to get some rain there to help with the fire. Yes, it would. Yes. So where do you want to start today? And talking about your memoir and your work. Well, you know, I'll tell you something interesting that came up for me around this memoir. Yeah. I'm not a famous person, and I didn't topple Wall Street, and I didn't hike the Pacific Crest Trail, and I didn't do these big, grand things in my life that some other memoirs are like, are, Mm. are based upon. And so I worried when I published this book that it was too too small, that my story yeah. was too personal, too small, too intimate, because it's really just the story of a family. That's really all it is. And it's the story of how love and loss, grief and gratitude are not opposites, but that they live side by side in most families. So I worried for a while that the story was too small, but what I'm finding is that even though it's a very individual story, it's a universal one. It is. I, mar- I married a man who was a, a young widower 
somebody whom I had known for many years as a friend of my family. And he was a young widower with a young son. So when I was becoming a mother for the very first time, I went to the bookstore and I looked for a book describing what I was going through. And I found baby naming books and I found books about battling ex-wives and all those Mm. kinds of things. And none of them had to do with me. So I started just writing these stories for myself to sort of chronologue what we were going through as a family. So really what ended up happening is, and I never meant for it to to be a book, it was really just a series of stories I was writing to sort of understand what I was going through, and that's my own therapeutic process is to kind of write things out. Right. But eventually I saw that it was a book, and I found that, that the themes are really universal and that people are very much connecting to them. Well, what I found helpful about your book and unique in that you were very transparent in how your mm. early childhood experiences shaped the relationship that, that you were in with Tom, your your husband, right. and Correct. particularly the the abuse that you experienced from your father and, and carrying over those fears and the triggers, like worrying at moments if you'll upset him and gradually over time being able to settle in to the peace Mm -hmm. and calmness and that healing that happens when you are with someone who's safe and you can really reprogram yourself and retrain your central nervous system to even have a baseline of peace, knowing that it's okay to spill the milk, so to speak, and nothing bad will happen. And it was also something that, like lots of folks who've survived less less than ideal families, as I did and my siblings did, I just didn't want to duplicate the pattern. I didn't want the same thing to happen to my children. And in my youth, in my early 20s, I just thought the only way not to duplicate the pattern was not to have children at all. I thought I would just never have children because I was so afraid that that, and, and as a therapist in training, I learning about family patterns and the transgenerational nature of all these things, I was just terrified that I was going to perpetuate what had happened in my own household and was so determined not to do that that eventually when I decided to be a mother, it's been my goal to be a different kind of a parent than what I experienced and to have my sons have no idea really about my own, not that they don't know intellectually, but that they would have no experience like what I experienced and what like so many of your listeners likely went through. This, the goal of wanting to raise your kids differently than you were raised, that's a really big deal. And it's, it, is. it sounds like it's such an easy thing to do, but gosh, it's not. There's a gravitational pull to those patterns and those ways of reacting and those ways of acting that it's really been a, a lifelong journey to change those patterns. And I think that's what it is for everybody. I think so, too. And I'm reflecting on a passage in your memoir talking about even when you, you had Sam, your your little son, and he was Our young. second and, son, yes. second son, yes. And feeding him like the mashed sweet potato baby food and just the right. stress of how those are the moments as a parent where you choose how you're going to respond. And, and so it is, I think, a constant process of responding differently than how your father did and the abuse that you right. and your siblings experienced. You know, it's funny, too, that you say it that way, too, Lisa, because it is a choice, and I, and I celebrate that choice if I didn't believe in the power of choice and the power of making a change. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a very good therapist, of course. But I also don't think it's just as easy as deciding. A lot of people just think, oh, you know, I came from this terrible background. I'm not going to do it. And they sort of white knuckle their way through trying to raise their children differently. And, And frankly, the reason that I have been able to parent my own children differently than I was parented is because I have a community of support. I have loved ones. I have a a husband, I have friends, I have therapists in the past. I've had lots of support to make those changes possible. So yes, it's a decision. And it's a decision that requires a lot of support to make it to make the actual change happen. And I agree that it takes more than just willpower or right. else there wouldn't be abuse or addictions or, or no, no, any nobody such. Nobody wakes up in the morning and rubs their hand gleefully together and says, gee, I think I'll abuse my kids today. I mean, right. it doesn't happen that even even the most diabolical person doesn't start with that atten- intention. Right. So you really made it your business to do the work of healing is what I hear you saying. Absolutely. And I had a, an idea the other day, too, with so much going on in our world and in our country, and there's lots of activism of all kinds and in all arenas, and I'm certainly part of some of that. 
but that I sometimes think the most radical or or the, the biggest change that we can make in terms of our society is to raise our children well. I'm mm-hmm. looking and now I have two men that I've raised that are lovely human beings that are kind to women that are that will be good if good to their children should they choose to have them. You know, so it's a it's a multiple generational thing. It's a, it's a way to enact change in a huge way mm-hmm. without ever leaving your house really. <laughs> it's yeah. it's built in. And and also setting the tone for a new generation of of men like your sons, Max and Sam. Right. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And I I think that's the biggest changes that we can make. Of course, I don't discourage any activism. I'm certainly part of that too. Mm-hmm. But I always encourage people to start the, you know, that sort of think globally, act locally. <laughs> Axiom, I think act very locally, like in your house, in your home, yeah. in your family. Yes. You know, speaking of that, I, I know you, one of the, I guess, causes to, to call it that, that is really near and dear to your heart, it would be suicide prevention. And in your book, it was just really visceral to read the passages about your brother, John, mm-hmm. and him taking his own life. And I wondered if you could talk to our listeners some about about this topic. Well, sadly, in my own family, as in so many, we've had losses. And, and there have been three men in my family, my extended family, that have taken their own lives. Uh, one when he was very young, one and two at middle age. And each was shocking and horrible and left an aftermath that was hard to get through. But I've really come to believe that we can that grief lives in us, it doesn't go away, mm-hmm. but that joy can live alongside it. Yes. So for those who have lost someone to suicide as tragic and horrible and mystifying as it is it's a puzzle that will never have all the pieces (laughs) it's a question that will never fully be answered the why and the what if and the maybe and the might of all of those things that go into a a family member after a loved or a loved one of any kind after a suicide you have to live with that unresolved chord or that unfinished puzzle but that can live alongside a really happy life too. Yeah, that it's not a dis- it's not a disservice to the one who was lost to go on and to, to make joy in your life. Exactly. So is that you do a lot of things, which I want us to talk all about during our time mm-hmm. together. Your morning <laughs> glory project that's mm-hmm. that's coming soon on your website. Can you talk to us about that and how it ties well, in? It, it ties in, and it also ties into another little project I've begun. So I, I've, I have stopped and started, I have to confess, the Morning Glory Project just because of time and getting this book launched and a few other matters. But the Morning Glory Project is essentially this. I, any gardener knows, any gardener who's been around knows that morning glories are some of the most beautiful but also some of the most aggressive and tenacious vines around. They'll take over your yard. Mm. They'll climb over, under, around, through anything. They'll crawl under sheds through darkness and rock just to bloom on the other side. And that's the metaphor that I find mm. useful about surviving loss of any kind, surviving trauma, surviving disappointment, is that we need to be like the morning glory. We have to go through the darkness and the rubble and over and under and around the obstacles that we face to bloom on the other side of it. Yes. And so my notion of the morning glory project, which is just in its beginnings, is to celebrate people who have done exactly that. People who survived what seemed to be unsurvivable and have gone on not to forget it and not unscarred and not perfect, but that they've gone on to build lives that are full of meaning and that they find joy and that they find love and happiness and those things on the other side of the loss and the tragedy. Sometimes they build it in. Sometimes the loss itself becomes their cause. They've lost a child to gun violence and they work against gun violence. In their yes. Or they've lost someone to suicide and they work in suicide prevention. So how we weave that into ourselves is individual. But the notion that we need to bloom on the other side of whatever darkness we go through is something that I think is just an elemental way to live life. Otherwise, we all fold it up, right? There's no right. every every tragedy would just we, we would fold like a like a card table. 
but we yes. know that we have to get to move on and we know that we that life is going to keep coming in that restoration will arrive so what i'm doing now mm-hmm. is because the cover of my book has red shoes on it i don't know you have your copy there yeah but if right anybody looks at it on amazon or on my website or anywhere else uh, filling her shoes has a pair of vacated red shoes on the cover which i really like because i felt as though i was stepping into the shoes of someone else when I uh, married my husband and adopted my older son, so I was stepping into her shoes. So now I'm doing something. I'm calling calling it the Red Shoe Awards for people I who step it. in and help help others. Frankly, Lisa, I'm I'm sort of rebranding the idea yeah. of the stepmother because yeah. I don't know about you, but if I say the word stepmother and I say describe the most common adjective that describes it, what would you say? Oh, I think it was Snow White and that and that so it, stepmother. It's a blank stepmother. <laughs> It's the yeah. blank stepmother. It's the wicked stepmother, right? Yes. It's, she's either wicked or evil or something like that. And I didn't like that image. I didn't want to be that kind of stepmom. So I'm using the Red Shoe camp, the Red Shoe Award and, and what I'm calling the Step In Awareness Campaign to congratulate people who step in. I think of it as a step-in mother as opposed to a stepmother. Oh, I love that. Someone who's stepped, someone who's stepped in. And some of us do it better than others, and all of us struggle, and we all have bad days, and I've got some that I sure wouldn't want on videotape. But we step in and we do the best we can. That's what a good parent does, and that's what a good step-parent does. I'm going to step in for a lifetime like that, and sometimes we step in for a kid for just a moment. You know, right. like a kid that's gotten lost at the grocery store and you stand there and you hover over them for a second or two waiting for their mom to come around the corner. You you stepped in just for a second for that kid. And sometimes you step in for a longer period of time, for a season, for a kid that doesn't have a place to stay or an adult for that matter. Or sometimes you step in for a lifetime. You adopt or you foster and it could be humans or it could be, your, be animals, however you do that. So I, I like to congratulate people for stepping in and it happens all around us. And I always encourage people to, when they're walking around just out on the street or at a grocery store or whatever, look down. Every time you see a pair of red shoes, let it remind you of mm-hmm. people that have stepped in to help you or opportunities that you've had to step in and help somebody else. I just love that, Betsy. I have a, a stepmother, I'll say in air quotes, and it's never felt right to even call her that. So I love mm-hmm. the step-in mother because she did mm-hmm. step in to our lives and has been such a nurturing force and just beautiful person to have entered my life and my siblings' lives. So I love this stepping in, mother. When you are a stepmom, when you step in, particularly sometimes after divorce, because if the the divorce has been a painful loss and particularly contentious or just difficult, that's one kind of stepping in. Or after a death, as was in my case, the the stepmothering job, it's a bit of a tightrope. On one hand, it's an enormous privilege. I, I feel like my family is, a, is an inheritance that I got. That's why I have the subtitle of the book, A Memoir of an Inherited Family. Mm-hmm. I inherited my husband and my, my older son from someone who passed. So I have this legacy <laughs> that someone left me and that I feel an honor to uphold. Now, yes. there may be a little different feeling when there's a divorce because there's some contention there. But I think that when you when you step in, when you take on the raising of another person's child as your own, whether it's as a part-time parent or a full-time one in my case, it's just something that needs to be honored. And it deserves to be, you deserve all kinds of support because it isn't always easy. Right. Well, and it's illustrated beautifully in your memoir, the way that you handle that with Max, your son, stepping into his life and into his family after his mother passed away and really letting him come to you and just the way you describe your relationship that mm. blossomed over the years. Thank you. I, I, I'm really pleased by that, too. And, and I was lucky. I'm going to also tell you. Max was also just a really wonderful, warm kid. He was pensive. He was scared. He'd had he'd suffered a terrible loss, but he wasn't hardened. He was. He trusted his dad a lot, and so I was allowed in in a pretty generous way. And that's not always as easy for other people. So I had some things that were harder than what some people go through, and some things that were a lot easier mm-hmm. than what other people go through. But the the story. Anybody who's had a loss or anybody who's 
taken on somebody after they've had a loss, whether it's your partner or your or a kid, I think there's something in the story for you. I think there's something about that. And really what I've done is it's it's not so much a story from front to back as it is a series of vignettes. It's sort of a series of moments that I thought were were turning points in us becoming a family. Yes, that are universal for mm-hmm. so many others. Even though I don't have children, I could relate mm-hmm. as I'm Aunt Lisa to so many children. Exactly. And some of my friends have lost their spouse and are dating and how to blend a family with a new partner. And so I exactly. think the principles are so universal. You know, one of the, the stories that gets one of the biggest reactions, Lisa, you might be surprised. It's the story, I call it the goldfish story. Okay. But it's really, you know, we had that common experience that every family has right, where your kid wins a goldfish at the school carnival. Oh, yes. Who hasn't had this happen, oh. or your nieces and nephews, for that matter, I or you and your happen. own memory. Yes, Charlie, and that you, we, oh, I remember. Charlie the goldfish. So, <laughs> Charlie? Yeah. <laughs> Yours was Charlie C. Wilson? Mine was, mine was Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's a common experience, and we've also all been those parents that you win the free in quotes, goldfish, right? And then you go spend 50 or 60 bucks pet store buying the, <laughs> <laughs> the rocks and the bowls and all that stuff. And and about, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I don't know what, what the life expectancy is for carnival goldfish, but in our house, it's pretty short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it is for lots of families. And so that's a common experience, right? You buy the goldfish, a goldfish dies, pet, that happens in families. Yes. But when you've had a family, when you're with a child who's suffered the loss of a parent, small deaths take on a big measure. Meaning, yes. They have a bigger meaning. They have a bigger impact. And there are different defenses around that. So, again, while my family is like most every other family in lots of ways, there are also some special idiosyncratic ways in which when, you've had, when you have a child that's had a loss like that, there's something a little different. Yeah, and I very clearly remember that portion of your memoir with Max mm-hmm. winning the, the goldfish. I think there were two fish in the bowl, and yes. he had cleaned it so well, just didn't rinse right. out a little bit of the bubbles, and they were floating upside down. And, right. and just I, I literally was like, oh, no, like knowing he had lost his mom and seeing where you were going with this, like not another loss for him. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, you, we, we think... You know, it's, it's every parent's urge to protect their child. Right. And, you know, we did our best to try to protect Max from the harshness of the world in lots of ways. But you can't protect them against everything. Things are going to happen. Goldfish are going to die. And in my case also, there was a suicide, after, you know, many years after we were together, my brother took his life. And I sort of felt like, oh, my gosh, I failed. I brought this pain into this child's mm. life, even though he was a young right. man at that point. I brought this in. This wasn't some. This was something I should have protected him from. Of course, I had no ability to do that. It's a. It's all a wish that you want to do, and you're not able. But I think that when you have a kid with a loss, you're you're extra alert to protecting them from other losses when they can. Well, and Betsy, you felt that same guilt when your twins passed away. I remember you feeling. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the first thing, whenever yeah. whenever there's a loss in, in our experience, it's, oh, no, how is Max going to feel this? Or And in my case, too, how about Tom? You Tom, know, your husband. a tremendous loss, too. Right. So I, I'm reluctant. If, you know, I had, a, I had a, a lump in my breast many years ago. It turned out to be benign. It was nothing. It was no big deal. But I was terrified to tell him he had lost a wife to cancer. She had leukemia. I didn't want to be another wife with cancer to him. Right. right. So, I, so in addition to whatever fear we all have, I had that extra little thing, and I couldn't tell him about it until it was settled. I had to go get it biopsied and take care. Of. I I had to get it taken care of because I didn't feel like I wanted to put that worry on him in a way. Did your husband? Did your husband Tom wish that you would have shared it with him earlier after you went through He's, telling he, him? He always thinks that my my agitation around such things are excessive he's fine it's it's that's my own hesitancy it's like oh my gosh i don't want to burden these people anymore and right. that's my own learning edge is to continue to say now wait a minute he's now my husband and he has been for more than 25 years i think i should talk to him about this yeah and i do and mostly we do but there have been times in in our history where it's sort of gosh do i really want this guy's already been through so much i don't want to add to it right so that's what you've been working through 
consistently, I'm hearing. Sure. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In your relationship with him, working through the balance of your needs and his needs, your son's needs. Well, also realizing that when you deprive your, your mate of your intimate thoughts and fears, that you're not being as intimate with him as you can be. You're depriving right. the relationship of the oxygen that makes it close, right? So I've learned not to do that. I've learned that, first of all, he's fine. He can take it. And also that this is our marriage and that, 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 that we have a certain quality that we want it to have. And it doesn't have that if I'm withholding everything about myself. Certainly. Certainly. So I'm aware, I'm not sure where you want to go from here because you offer a lot of cool things as far as coaching for writers, coaching for speakers. And so where do you want to take the next part of our conversation? Oh, well, one of my greatest joys in in the last 15 to 20 years of my life has been discovering a, a community of writers. And I love working with creative people both clinically and just personally. Mm -hmm. So what I've done, I, I've started doing groups years ago where I'm working with people who are either writing fiction or memoir, and I kind of separate them in groups and help them work out. And sometimes I work individually with people telephonically. Now, you can do that as you do with right. your practice. So I work with folks because there are a lot of obstacles to writing a book. There's, there's time in everybody's life, but there's also... We run up against our fears and our hesitations and our concerns and we get worried and we think we're doing it badly and we don't know where to start and we get overwhelmed and all of those things. So I help people to have deadlines and, and also to get feedback so they kind of keep going. And that's one part of the work. The other part of the work that I do is that you'd be shocked to know, but writing books doesn't pay the mortgage. <laughs> okay. It, at, at least unless you get, I guess if you get to be a New York Times bestseller or something, but, but most of us don't, don't make our living that way. Okay. And, uh, we, and so in addition to that work, I also coach public speaking, and I have in Fortune 500 com companies all around the country for many years. But now I do that for writers and artists. And other I think that's folks cool. that other creative people, because a lot of people that are really great at writing a book aren't great at talking about it. Or someone who's really great at creating art may not be terrific at presenting their art to galleries or to other promoters or supporters so that they can get financial gain or they can get commercial success. So I work with artists and writers to help them get ready for book launches or gallery launches, those kinds of things. I think that's really some confidence. Yes, I think that's so important. And I can speak from from both sides of that fence. I'm a psychotherapist, as you know, and I'm also a glass artist. I've cast mm. and blown glass for 24 years and I've oh, done wow. some commissions for Hilton and Harris Hotel and private residences and some restaurants. And so I, I love I'm able to talk about my work, though it can be hard to really do that self-promotion um, with with art because I just love making things. So I, I relate to the artist's kind of a really well-developed sense of creativity and how things fit and come together, but maybe uh, not as well-developed in the area of self-promotion and, and such. Well, and... and in a way, I, it's funny you use the term self-promotion, and most people wince at that a little bit because that's exactly the part that they hate doing. And yeah. so I, I tend to try to work with people to have them talk about their work as a conversation and not as a pitch. To talk right. about the work that, that excites them and that, where their passion is and where their energy is as opposed to selling, selling, selling. Most, most creative people are not salespeople. Uh, you yes, have a different set of genes in a way. I agree. <laughs> and so this isn't about making you into a salesperson so much as empowering you to speak in an excited and animated and interesting way about the work that you do and, or the art that you've created. 
Well, I like your perspective because that even feels as as I sit with you, my chest felt a little tight in talking about self-promotion and then just hearing you say, well, talk about your work and your passion around it. I immediately relax because that's accessible within me as an artist and I'm sure within other creatives that are listening right now. Right, right. Well, I, I think as soon as you, you get off the hook of you don't have to be a salesperson, it becomes a lot easier. It becomes sort of, oh, gosh, of course I like talking about this book. I'm really proud of it. I'm excited about it. I, I think it has some beautiful moments, and I think that, it, that a lot of people will connect to it. And if I can talk about it that way in a genuine way, that's not me selling it. That's me saying I have this thing that's so exciting. I hope you find it, and I hope you love it, too. And there's something I read on your website about this. I I think it has to do with, if you can help me, with the work with writers, the belief that every time they talk about their book, even as it's emerging, that's, say, public speaking. Can can you talk to us about this? Sure. Well, here's how I kind of think about it. To this day, I don't do public speaking, in quotes, right? I don't do that public speaking, because that sounds scary to me. What I do is I have a series of one-on-one conversations with however many people are in the room. So if there are 100 people in the room, I just talk to one person at a time. That doesn't mean I talk to one person to the exclusion of the others. I'm rotating my eyes around. But I think of it as a series of one-on-one conversations. And so rather than thinking of it as public speaking, oh my gosh, well, really, whenever if you're at a cocktail party and you talk about your glass or I talk about my book, you're already public speaking. If you're talking about it with me on the radio right now, this is public speaking, what you and I are doing right now. It is. It's, just, it's not standing at a lectern with a microphone doing a TED Talk or something like that. And there are different kinds of public speaking. But we got to kind of get it in our heads. Those of us who are more introverted or who are hesitant to to stand at a lectern in front of a group of people. If we start thinking, gosh, I've been speaking publicly since every time I talk, (laughs) since the beginning of time. Every time you're talking to one person, you're speaking publicly. Yes. I like that. Because it's a matter of getting that natural self up to the front of the room. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you say getting... Did you say getting your natural self up? I'm sorry, I was talking at the same time. Oh, that's okay. Our, our technology is making us accidentally rude. It's not my intention to, <laughs> to interrupt Mine. you. Well, how I think of it is, I've seen people in my classes, they come in and they, oh, hi, nice to meet you, and they shake my hand, and they're warm, and they're friendly, and they're lovely. And then as soon as I say, okay, present, they stand at the front of the room and they freeze. Mm. And all of a sudden, they become this unnatural thing. They start doing these very self-conscious, unnatural kinds of movements, and they stammer, and they look away. They do funny things. And I say, now, wait a minute. Where was that guy I just met a few minutes ago? I liked him. Why can't we bring him up to the front? Yes. So that that you that is comfortable and conversational and relaxed is the same you that people want to see at the front of the room. They don't. They don't want to see a performance. That you, you pay money for movies and theater and music performance when you want that. But you, when you want to go hear somebody talk, you want to hear them talk in a natural way. You want to hear them be conversational, even if it's a prepared speech, which most of us don't do. You want it to sound like it's not, right? You want so, it to sound yeah. accessible and conversational. How do you help people access that place within themselves? Practice. And okay. also some of, I do something that I call mind shifting with people, like the one I just did with you. If you start thinking of public speaking with a capital P and start thinking of it with a lowercase p, oh, public, every time I'm talking, it's public. Mm-hmm. Oh, if I start shifting my thinking about that and it starts to become less intimidating, then it gets easier. And then there's some just simple skills that I teach and people practice and we videotape them and look at, look back at it and see that worked and that didn't and how's that going. Sometimes I help them organize their content so they've got just the right amount for the amount of time that they've got and they have it structured in a way that they're telling a story instead of dumping a bunch of information onto people. I help authors get ready for book launches and help them decide what to say and how to kind of organize their time. Usually they overpack. They want to say too many things and there's not enough time. Mm. <laughs> so teach That them, makes sense. You know, how, you know how when you pack and you pack at the last minute, you throw in four pairs of black shoes? You know, when you should be removing throw, things instead. Right. And so if you practice and, and 
organize it ahead of time a little bit, then you say, oh, wait a minute, I do need two pairs of black shoes, but I don't need four. So you exactly. take two of them out and you lighten your load. And the same thing happens when you're organizing content for a talk. You tend to overpack at first and then you take a little time and you think, oh, wait, there's not really going to be time for that or that or that. Let's just focus in on this. Oh, I like that, Betsy. This makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It kind of demystifies yeah. the process. Well, most people are so anxious about public speaking that, that they think that they've got to have it all organized and, and scripted like like a screenplay. And then they get so nervous about whether they're going to remember their lines or not that they may look more and more stiff up there. So I don't have them create a script. I just have them create a little bit of a map so they know where mm-hmm. they're going and they can find their way. And then they practice it enough times that it gets fluent and comfortable and easy. So can you let us know how listeners can work with you and where does being a marriage and family therapist fit into all this for you also? So that's two separate questions. It's, it is two separate things because there's, there's clinical work that I do with folks and then there's work around speaking and writing and those kinds of things. So that's a different matter. My website is my name, which is a, a very cumbersome name, Betsy Graziani Fassbender, that people can find on your website. I won't spell it all out. It'd take a day or two. And, <laughs> but, I'm, but you can find me at, uh, at my website, BetsyGraziani.com. And that's available, and I'm sure you'll post those, that kind of information up on your site. Definitely. Through NOLA Therapy, listeners can access this show at the LA Talk Radio link where your website will be available. So I'm curious, tell me about your work as a marriage and family therapist. How much of your time does this consist of? Are you in private practice? Are you in agency practice? That's something I I wanted to know more about. I have been in private practice and I have been in agency practice. Right now I have a very, very small private practice. I'm doing book work for the most part, but I'm building that in, in the North Bay area. And the being a, a family therapist was both helpful and not helpful in the writing of this book because I don't want people to get the impression that the book itself is a therapy book. No, it's not at all. So not. It's really just a personal story. And the fact that I happen to be a therapist, I could have been a teacher or a plumber or anything else. So the, the fact of my being a therapist is relevant to the story only in that as a practicing therapist and having gone through my own therapy and recovery and healing process, I knew that there were dynamics in our family that I had to pay attention to. <laughs> I, I knew maybe more than the average person might know about some of that stuff. And sometimes that was a disadvantage knowing I was so afraid that I'd cause a problem that I kind of paralyzed myself at first. And I got over it, you know, just like a new pair of shoes. You wear it in after a while when you become a stepmom too. Right. But so my, so my therapy life, my life as a therapist has always sort of lived side by side. I, I have a lot of things that I like doing and I've never done just one. So I write and I teach and I coach and I have a clinical practice as well. And they all seem to work in pretty nice harmony. So I was curious since writing seems like it has been a really significant, significant aspect of your life for a long time. Mm -hmm. How did you begin to journal, to write? When did that become so dear to you? Honestly, Lisa, it became dear to me from the time I could write. I started mm-hmm. writing in a journal as a small child. I, I even have some of those original ones. They were like when I was seven, eight, nine, ten. They even have, have pictures in them, some of them. Wow. And I, I wrote, I think, to escape and to sort things out and to understand mm-hmm. things. I wrote for entertainment. I kind of had my own little mental world that I went to that was a pretty adaptive and healthy thing to do now that I look back at it. So it's been a part of my life forever. And I always wrote, in addition to writing journals, which is one kind of writing, I also wrote stories about sometimes made up things and sometimes memoir moments like what you okay. what are in this book. And I've always written them. But I didn't think of publishing them or of being a, a published writer until I was well into my 30s. Okay. And that's when I started thinking, I started sharing some of the work out loud. I started reading it in public and I joined a group and read it to them. And people said, oh, I really like that. And with my first book, which was a novel called Fire and Water, I, was, I had been reading those bits of those stories to a writing group. And they said, gosh, you should think about publishing this. This is a really good story. And I... I sort of was taken aback. It wasn't my intention originally. And since then, I've found the real value in writing the stories 
there, it's sort of a twofold value. There's, there's the healthy entertainment and reparative quality of just writing it, even if no one else ever looks at it. That's cool. Right. But when you have a story that then you share and other people bring their responses to it and they have their own stories that they attach to it, the story becomes sort of three-dimensional. <laughs> it gets really exciting when other people say, oh, that happened to me too, or oh, I can't imagine what I would do if, or how did you do that, or... You know, when people put themselves in the story, mm-hmm. there's something very intimate about that. Something yes. very, very special and to be honored about sharing that experience with a reader. When you when you mention your writing group, is that your group, Bella Quattro, that you've it is. been a part it of is. for more than 12 you years? You did do your research. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I have. I have been a member of a writing group. There are four of us. We've named ourselves Belle Quattro, which in Italian is beautiful four, and mm. we like to think of ourselves that way. And I have three other colleagues, Amy Peel and Christy Nelson and Linda Joy Myers. I'll be interviewing Linda in a few weeks. Oh, wonderful. Well, you'll yeah. love Linda. Linda is the founder, the president and founder of the National Association for Memoir Writers, NAMW. Oh, which is a great resource for anybody who's entertaining the idea, whether they ever want to publish it or not. Anybody that wants to write some of their own story for themselves, for their family legacy, or to publish. And it's just a great resource and very economical and all that. And Amy Peel, Linda has a new book out that you're going to talk about shortly. And Amy Peel, my other writing partner, has has her book Cut, which is a medical murder mystery. Mm. And Christy Nelson will have a book coming out next fall. That is about the, San, the excuse me, the World's Fair that took place in on Treasure Island near San Francisco many years ago. So, okay. a very kind of film noir book. Very cool. What an amazing group yeah. of women you all are. Yeah, we've been a, we've been together for sixteen, seventeen, something like that. Wow. And really support each other. We we are each other's readers sometimes. Mostly, we're each other's cheerleaders and supporters and. And just have loved, we fell in love with each other's pages and then we became friends. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I like that. So there's a lot of meaningfulness there. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, it's, very, it's a very intimate thing to share your unedited, unvarnished, not so pretty pages with somebody mm-hmm. <laughs> when they, they get them really raw and nasty and help you wad, kind of waddle through them and try to find find the good stuff and check the bad stuff. So it takes a lot of trust to show somebody your work when it's raw and unfinished and not so pretty. I'm feeling that a bit. Beautiful women have done that. Beautiful. I'm feeling that a bit right now as I'm writing my first book and I've shared some of it with friends and it it feels exposing much like making art and having a show Mm -hmm. and kind of letting others see how that really inner workings of your mind. Well, don't you think, I mean, that's what art really is. Art, art is exposing our most intimate things to the outside world, right? Whether it's through visual arts or through literary or dance or music, whatever it might be. And so when this book, when Filling Her Shoes was first coming out in May, honestly, Lisa, I felt like I had taken my clothes off in public. <laughs> I believe I like, you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, my story is out there. And, be, and now I'm open. And, and now in our social media world, I'm open for criticism, right? There's mm. some people that think it's a ridiculous story that I'm or that I made stupid choices or whatever it might be. Most of it's been beautiful and positive, And I've been fortunate that way. But it, it is a it is a naked experience. Yeah, putting one's art and one's think of it this way: What other art form invites you into my imagination for for twelve to fourteen hours of reading time? Yes, you know, you spend a lot of time in my memoir. You spend it in my life, and in my novel, you spend it in my imagined life and imagination world. And so, it's a very intimate thing to have somebody read a couple of hundred pages that you wrote. Yeah, and you've demonstrated a lot of courage to put forth your personal story of your upbringing and how that influenced the the marriage you were in and raising your sons and the losses. And so it makes sense to me that you felt like you're naked because you were. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I I, I don't think of it so so much as brave as I think of it as really necessary. And by that, what I mean is, again, and, and... 
our social and economic and political environments and world environment is so nutty right now that that and, and it always is to some degree that I think that there's something really innately human about our stories, right? No other mm-hmm. animals tell stories to each other in the same way, right? Right. So our 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 verbal capacity and our 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 stories are what make us uniquely human. And I think that it is in sharing them and in that we develop empathy toward somebody's life whom we, we might not ever have made the choices they made or lived the life they lived, but somehow we can gain empathy. So, so by reading each other's stories, but whether they're, again, fictional or, or memoir, we're building connections between humans. It's, it's the currency of, of intimate connection our story story sharing and a story can be as long as a song right that's a story yeah a story can be a painting or a story can be a memoir mm-hmm. i love that it's a tapestry that we're mm. weaving together mm. and sharing our that's stories well. and having it read and witnessed i think yeah i think of it as connective tissue yeah <laughs> between human beings our our stories, the things that the things that make us laugh, the things that make us cry together, the things that make us angry together or at each other even. Mm-hmm. That's the connective tissue of humanity, isn't it? It is. And so I'm experiencing Yes. And I'm experiencing that anticipatory uh, nakedness and just thinking of people reading <laughs> some of the passages from my book. It's it's a book on core wounding for healing practitioners mm. to heal via visiting those places of trauma and loss and with empathy and love and forgiveness as the main tools. So I do share some personal experiences that, mm. that most people don't know. And it's like, <gasps> like it almost takes my breath away. But the purpose is to be helpful. And so people can see I'm not perfect. None of us are. And these have been great gifts in my life that once looked like mistakes and have become my greatest strengths. And so I feel like I'm willing mm. to to stand by my story and and let it be uh, a message of healing for those that choose to go there. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, let me give you a little little spoiler. Please. The wonderful spoiler. The wonderful spoiler is most of the stuff that you're afraid of in exposing your the most intimate parts of yourself, most of the reactions that you're afraid are going to happen don't. Great. <laughs> don't. Thank you. Thank you. I was just sure that 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 critics and that individual readers were going to shoot this down as being trivial or, you know, who does this woman think she is? Her story is so unimportant. Why is it out in the world? You know, that, all these fantasized criticisms that I had that are really manufactured of my own inner critic, right? She's, she's pumping out yeah. ideas out there telling me how awful things are all the time. And so none of that has happened. Mostly what happens is people say what you've said, like, oh, my gosh, I read that story and I remembered the time when, or, oh, that I went through that too, or, gosh, you, you were brave for writing this. I'm, I'm not saying that that's what I'm seeking. I'm saying no. that's been the response. Mm-hmm. So what the responses that you just gave me were exactly the opposite of the ones that I feared. Wow. And then the ones that I feared have happened. Yeah. That's great. That's great to know. Thank you for that. And I want to bring it back to your book as we're concluding Mm -hmm. to something that I loved that stood out. And and just to bring, Mm -hmm. I don't know if your sons, Max or Sam, Max and Sam are listening right now, but something that touched me so deeply was towards the very end of the book where you actually brought them to adopt a cat and and just you talking (laughs) about cats. Because I have two kitty cats and they fly with me between New Orleans and L.A. And I love yeah. that you gifted your sons with picking their cat. And um, I just thought it was a beautiful example of unconditional love that you push oh. through your own boundaries. To well, Now, what, what, if you haven't read the story, what people may not know is... And please forgive me, cat people. This may be the one source of resistance <laughs> I get out there. I'm just not a cat person. I can appreciate them as beautiful animals and special, but I just did. I didn't grow up with kitties in the house, and it's just sort of not my thing. And I was rather happy not to have a kitty. But my <laughs> son's first mother, yes, loved cats. Just mm-hmm. loved them, and they were a huge part of her life. And my 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 husband likes them as well, but my son Max really needed he didn't just want a cat he needed a cat he did and 
by golly, here I thought I'd escaped having to have another cat in my life, and we needed to have a cat. <laughs> so sometimes this is the stuff that every parent goes through, right? Yeah. You say that you're never going to allow your kids to X, Y, and Z, and then you've got a kid that's interested in that, and by golly, she wants to do that, and there you are at swim meet practice at seven in the morning because you've got a swimmer in your, t- in your house. You know, yeah. so parents do that. You meet your kids where they are. You and did that so well. <laughs> I loved that part of the memoir. So I just had oh, to share that you. with you. You're welcome. So what would you like? We have maybe we're at the very end of our show. What would you like to leave listeners with that we have not covered already? Betsy. Mm. Well, I would say that, Families form in thousands of different kinds of ways, whether they're adopted or blended or married or not married or live together or thrown together or fostered or whatever it might be. We we form our families in different ways and to really honor that however it gets formed, family, family, however, and, and I, I call them, I have people that I call family. <laughs> They're friend families. Right? Like I've that. lost a certain certain segment of my own family by choice, some folks that were not so healthy to be around, and I've, I've separated from that section of the family. So now I have some family members. I've got, I've got fristers and brothers, right? <laughs> I've got Aww, sisters and brothers yeah. that, that aren't biologically mine, but that are, that are dear to me and I regard as family. So whatever your family is, however it's formed, however it's called, you get to know who your family is. You get, mm-hmm. to, you get to claim them, whether they are biologically or maritally attached to you or not. And that's what filling her shoes is. It's, a, it's about being a family of whatever shape yours happens to be, as mine was. Betsy, thank you for being my guest today. Beautiful you. memoir. You're welcome. Thank you. I so appreciate your time and your program. Thank you so much for creating this opportunity. You're welcome, Betsy. Thank you as well. And I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes today's show with Betsy Graziani Fossbender. Listen in next week at the same time as I bring you another inspiring guest. I hope you have a fantastic week. Bye-bye. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio.